I mean, every time you go out in the mountains, you, you learn something, unless you have your brain turned off. Inbred curiosity of what's going on in, inside the snowpack. Tremendous collapse on that surface ore layer. Welcome to episode 2.13 of the Avalanche Hour podcast. I'm your host, Caleb Merrill. The Avalanche Hour podcast is presented by TAS Gazex, an avalanche of solutions. With additional support from Black Diamond and Peeps, live, ski, repeat, and 10 Barrel Brewing, here's to living it up with a beer in hand. The goal of this podcast is to create a stronger community through the sharing of stories, knowledge, and news amongst people who have a curious fascination with avalanches. Well, I'm a couple days late on getting this episode out. I've been on the road. I know you all set your watches to the release of this podcast, so my apologies for the tardiness. I hope you all are enjoying the longer days this spring and your snowpack is settling nicely into a nice crop of corn with some good late season winter storm skiing thrown in here and there. Are your hands getting wet while skiing this spring? Are those gloves getting worn out? Tag at the Avalanche Hour podcast in a social media post and be entered to win a pair of legend gloves courtesy of our friends at Black Diamond. We'll draw a winner on April 15th. I tell you what, your odds are pretty good right now, so don't delay. Tag us today. While you're at it, check out some of the great deals that BD has going on right now on some of their ski and snow safety products. Also check out our website www.theavalanchehour.com and cruise over to the store to get some show swag. All proceeds on sales through the end of April will be donated to the Protect Our Winters organization. Today's episode features Rod Newcomb. I feel lucky to have had the opportunity to sit down with Rod this fall in Jackson. Rod is a legend in the snow and avalanche community, as well as a forecaster, educator, and guide. Rod talks about his career in the snow and avalanche arena, as well as how he started and developed the American Avalanche Institute. This interview highlights some listener-based questions for Rod, so thanks to those of you who sent in some questions. There's a bit of background noise in this one from a heater in the room, so bear with me on that. Crack a cold 10-barrel beer, sit back, and enjoy our talk with Rod. I'm here with Rod Newcomb, and sitting in beautiful Jackson Hole, Wyoming. Sipping on some tea. Good morning, Rod. Good morning. Rod, I was hoping you could introduce yourself and uh, give us some 
background of your history and your roles within the avalanche community and guiding community. Well, Rob Newcomb uh, moved to Jackson in 1959 and started to ski in the local ski hill. And uh, was hanging around Jackson with a couple other ski bums waiting for the big hill to open, which it did in 65, 65, 66 was the first winter of Jackson Hole Ski Area, which is now Jackson Hole Mountain Resort, and 66, 67 was the, the opening of the tram where we had uh, 4,000 feet of avalanche paths from 10-4 to about 6,400. Uh, I first became interested in uh, avalanches the winter of 63-64 on Snow King when the entire Winter Mountain area had a snowpack comparable to what we find in the continental climate, particularly in, in Colorado, uh, large facets, depth or four to six millimeters with a, a good a series of storms throughout the winter on top of that. We had a fatality on the front side of smoking just outside of the open area. A patroller was killed in, in March in an avalanche which he kicked off, which ran on that early season depth for. And uh, halfway through that uh, winter I went to, to Alta and uh, uh, from mid-January on, I was patrolling at Outlet. That's where I first became interested, really interested in the uh, phenomenon of snow and avalanches. Every chance I got, I went out with the with the snow rangers who did all the avalanche control at Alta up until about 1970 or the late 60s, and uh, uh, from there to Vail one year on the patrol and finally Jackson opened and I was uh, very fortunate to get the job as the assistant to uh, a full-time Forest Service snow ranger. All right and, and then you have a pretty rich background in guiding as well. Well yeah I, I kind of separate that from Talking about avalanches because in those days there was no winter guiding period. Mm -hmm. uh, Glenn Exum had the uh, the only mountaineering concession at the Tetons at that time. <laughs> and he took off in the fall and was very reluctant to let us guide in the winter. We did finally talk him into letting us guide, it would have, would have been the mid-70s and uh, there were three or four guides here that worked for him in the summer that uh, got the word out that we were prepared to guide the Tetons. But winter conditions usually have something to say about the timing of, of guiding. We only guided one one trip up to South Teton, 
but uh, uh, yes, I did. I did guide every summer for Exo Mountain Guides for 48 years. Wow. So, Rod, you um, not only worked as a ski patroller and snow ranger, but you're also a, a legend in the avalanche education realm as well. You started American Avalanche Institute. Well, I don't know about the word legend, but uh, uh, any ski bum is looking for opportunities to make a living. And uh, after my six years at uh, Jackson Hole Mountain Resort, I was fortunate to get a job with uh, what we called the San Juan Avalanche Project. It was a spin-off of a cloud seeding program in the San Juans in southwest Colorado to study the effects of silver iodide on the environment. And the locals said, hey, you know, you're going to make more snow, you're going to make more avalanches. And that's the spin-off of the, what we call the San Juan Avalanche Project. And uh, that's where I really got into the nitty-gritty of understanding what's going on within the snowpack. You can uh, be an avalanche buster and watch the, the avalanches run and have a real keen mountaineering sense of when and where avalanches were going to run, but maybe not knowing that much about the snowpack. Now, I'm talking about the early 60s, when we were not in the dark ages, but in the sort of in the renaissance of, of uh, understanding what's going on in the snowpack. And uh, this project was a contract uh, from the University of, of Colorado uh, INSTAR, Institute of Arctic and Alpine Research, the lead investigator was Ed LaChapelle. And uh, I had the opportunity to work with him. Now we're going to talk about mentorship, but I, I can tell you some stories about Ed, where Ed, being the mentor of everybody on the project, he was also learning. <laughs> so that's that's my one comment about mentorship. Uh, anybody that goes out with a mentor is learning. The mentor is also learning. So here we were for three years charged with coming up with a forecast model for Highway 550 with something like 70 avalanche paths from Uray down to to Colbank, and uh, uh, part of that survey was to, or, or part of that project was to come up with a description of the San Juan snowpack, which basically is describe the continental snowpack which had really not been done with three years of research doing uh, fraction line profiles, now we call them crown profiles. Uh, 
um, measuring settlement in the snowpack, in the continental snowpack. And as a spin-off of that entire project, uh, Richard Armstrong did his PhD thesis on uh, the thermal properties of snow, where we still refer to some of his work. And uh, one of the more important things that he found was that when facets, now, now this, uh, of course, was with one experiment over the period of a couple of years there at uh, uh, Red Mountain Pass, 11,000 feet, uh, not too far from the Continental Divide, was that uh, once the facets r reach a, a certain size, they resist settlement, and he, he could point that out with data from his pits throughout the, the winter. And uh, uh, the one winter that he uses as an example in his thesis is that uh, the depth or just quit settling about uh, about the middle of January. Subsequent loads applied to that depth or did not result in more settlement, and that was a big eye opener to me. And it. Uh, all of a sudden became clear why the high continental snowpack wherever you are with well-formed facets on the ground is a tricky snowpack to forecast for. And uh, if one is to begin one's uh, avalanche education, the continental snowpack, I, I think is probably a better way to increase your learning curve than, say, the other two snow climates. So after three years of the project, something else was going on, and this was happening in the mountaineering community. All of a sudden, we had skinny skis. We discovered skinny skis. Of course, they'd been used in Europe for for decades, we had thin skins that would go on those skinny skis, and we had double boots for our, our three pins to keep our feet warm, so we could go out into the mountain without uh, getting cold and travel fast, and it didn't take any time at all to get into the avalanche terrain, particularly in Colorado where we go back to the reference of, uh, of depth or and a certain element of unpredictability in, in uh, that type of snowpack. And uh, after the project was over, it became apparent that there was a demand for uh, education in the form of uh, 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 predicting and forecasting instability. Uh, Ed LaChapelle had a, a field course for the phase two of the National Avalanche School. 
uh, which was to be held in Silverton. And this was the winter of 72-73, if I remember correctly. He said he would take 15 students. 35 showed up. It only cost $10 because it was subsidized at that time by the Forest Service. And uh, I went out with him <clears throat> on a couple of his uh, field sessions to, to give him a hand because uh, the 35 students with one instructor is not a very good guide ratio. So uh, it occurred to me that with my knowledge of how the snowpack worked and my practically a practical experience working at uh, Jackson Hole Mountain Resort with 4,000 vertical feet of of highly uncompacted snow in those days because hardly anybody could afford to get to Jackson and uh, 4,000 vertical feet of expert terrain at the top and, and not too easy terrain from there on down deterred uh, the intermediate skier. So ski compaction was not an issue those, <clears throat> those first few years at Jackson. So with my background, I <clears throat> went to La Chapelle and asked him <clears throat> what were the, the topics that should be included in an avalanche course for backcountry skiers. And uh, with that knowledge, I went to the various uh, forest service got a permit got my insurance and took a loan from the from the bank to buy uh, 50 uh, uh, peeps the old flat pack peeps that hung around your your neck and a little yellow uh, pouch and uh, was in business and so so you started teaching courses here in jackson my first courses that first year were 70, that was uh, the fall of 74. Uh, excuse me, I better get that phone. Sure. So that first winter, uh, if, I could, if, if I could have four instructors per course with 20 to 25 students I could make some money. Mm -hmm. The problem was availability of instructors which I considered qualified to teach an AVI course. Uh, there were the forecasters at the village, uh, Jackson Hole Mountain Resort, but they weren't really that heavily in, into the mechanics of and, and physics of the snowpack. So I had to bring people into Jackson, if you can uh, manage, uh, imagine in those days, to help me with my courses. Uh, Norm Wilson uh, came in from, from California. At that time, he had just quit working at Alpine Meadows, and uh, so he was available. Uh, I brought folks in from the Wasatch, Liam Fitzgerald, John Stratton, 
who were the two initial forecasters here at Snowbird. I brought uh, one of the old excellent guides that I worked with who was a snow ranger there at Alta in the 60s in from Colorado. And then my other courses were in Silverton where the San Juan Avalanche project was still kind of tailing off. So I had uh, La Chapelle uh, when he was in town. I had the Armstrongs. I had Don Bachman. And uh, then there was another fellow from Denver by the name of Art Mears who had a degree in, uh, in mechanical engineering and also, or, or civil engineering, and also geology. And uh, he didn't have a full-time job. And uh, he worked in with a lot of those courses, uh, not only in Silverton, but up here in Jackson and, uh, and elsewhere. So that was the first year of 73-74. And uh, it turned out that there was interest. Uh, interestingly enough, a lot of the interest came from the uh, Department of Agriculture, the Forest Service. The Forest Service had money to spend on training in those days. The Park Service, Park Service recognized that they needed to know something about uh, avalanches and, and the, the mountain the national parks of the West and ski areas. One prominent avalanche uh, worker in, in the West told me that he did not think that ski areas would pay for avalanche education because of the National Avalanche School, which was subsidized at that time by the Forest Service. No tuition to go to their big national school which was held in, in the fall. In those days, it was held in Reno. And uh, followed up with field sessions around the West, which were poorly t attended. So I did not and still do not place the National Avalanche School in high regard uh, for that reason. But ski areas recognized that if they were going to move out into the back bowls, which was just becoming popular along with backcountry mountaineering, ski mountaineering, I should call it, backcountry skiing and ski mountaineering, the, the term backcountry just evolved, and I'm not sure when it did. When I first started skiing the backcountry and in the western Wyoming, we called it ski mountaineering. And all of a sudden, it became backcountry skiing, and then side country skiing, and on and on. But uh, uh, I can't remember exactly where, where we were. Uh, well, uh, talking about the difficulty in getting instructors. Mm -hmm. But over the years, that slowly changed. The quality of, or the uh, uh, qualities that I was looking for with an avalanche instructor were, uh, first of all, uh, 
have you had any mountaineering experience? Mountaineers, if they're going to live, if they're going to come back safely from their mountain experience, have a, a, a keen awareness of, of uh, objective dangers, rockfall, hypothermia, lightning, and of course in the winter avalanches. And with that background, then they understand that there is a hazard out there and then they want to learn about the, the various hazards. And secondly, there's no experience for ski area work where you're out, out throwing the bombs and provoking avalanches. Then with time, you put together the snowpack, the weather that produced those slab avalanches. And also, you gain the very valuable experience of where are the boundaries of that slab avalanche that you think may run in front of you. Where are those boundaries? Are you standing back far enough? Is it going to travel over the next ridge into the next bowl? So forth and so on. And the best way to learn that is just from time and grade experience. And then thirdly, uh, I like to have my instructors with that inbred curiosity of what's going on in, inside the snowpack. Why did that little slough occur over there? Why is that avalanche in back of us on an unusual slope exposure? Why did it run? Where can I safely travel underneath avalanche paths? And on and on and on. So, so with time, uh, all of a sudden, uh, it seemed like all of a sudden, but uh, it happened over years, there was no problem getting very experienced and very good avalanche instructors. So Rod, could you talk about the progression of the American Avalanche Institute in terms of how your student population changed over time? Well, uh, when I first started, I had a four-day, I called it a ski tourers course. This was before the term level one and level two came in, and I'm still trying to figure out who came up with those terms. <laughs> I think it may have been the, the Alaska Avalanche School, but I think they said they thought somebody else did. But at any rate, that was a four-day course. And then I had my five-day pro course, which was for professionals. And that's where I got a lot of ski patrollers, a lot of government folks. And I had that course right here in, in January at the, at the village, the Jackson Hole Mountain Resort. Uh, half classroom and half field with with 50 folks 
I needed six or seven or even eight instructors. And uh, along with uh, folks eager to take avalanche courses, well-qualified instructors were eager to come and teach avalanche courses. So big names like uh, LaChapelle, uh, Norm Wilson, Art Mears, big names uh, back in the 70s. Mm -hmm. In addition to that, there was a, an engineering instructor at uh, Montana State in uh, Bozeman by the name of Bob Brown. And uh, he came from NASA, and he was a skier. He thought that he would show up in his engineering class and figure out all the mechanics and come up with a good model of why avalanches release and when they should release. <laughs> right away he discovered that that was not going to be the case, but a lot of his grad students were willing to come down and talk about the mechanical aspects of snowpack for that pro course. Mm -hmm. So uh, that course uh, gained uh, a reputation as being very popular. I held that course for six or seven years. And uh, so uh, as far as the progression, it was originally in Colorado, like Colorado, uh, uh, Colorado outward bound instructors. And then I had a course, oh, and uh, backcountry skiers. And uh, uh, over the years, uh, that really didn't change that much. Uh, ski areas no longer send as many students to uh, courses because they have their own snow safety directors who can teach the courses right there at the ski areas. Mm -hmm. But the big change, of course, was the uh, increase in avalanche awareness throughout the, the West and back East, too. Don't want to forget about New Hampshire and the White Mountains. Uh, Ski areas or, or, or ski shops were were selling all this equipment. All the ski shops in Denver, Wasatch, here in Jackson, and they said, you know, we're selling this stuff. We should hold an avalanche course through our store to teach people how to use it. And so I taught a lot of courses in the early days through various stores. Mm -hmm. as, as the recreational population got more involved in, in backcountry skiing? Uh, yes, and in skiing the back bowls at ski areas. Mm -hmm. That were at that time uncontrolled with explosives? Well, uh, right up until the mid to late 70s, 
using uh, Aspen Mountain as an example. Aspen Mountain was primarily a frontside ski area. They had two popular back bowls. One was called Difficult, and I can't remember what the other one was, that you could ski and then traverse around and hit the front side. But uh, they weren't very popular. Uh, let's look at, uh, at Snowmass. Snowmass was primarily a front side ski area. Then they would tell me that uh, they had these folks who would hire a ski instructor. Uh, they would ski the front side with their instructor for three or four days, and then they wanted to go out of bounds. They wanted to go to the side bowls or the back bowls. And uh, in order to do that, they needed to know something about avalanches. So it was both the move to the backcountry with a backcountry mountaineer uh, ski tour type, as well as the ski areas who recognized all of a sudden that people wanted to ski the the back bowls, the untracked back bowls. Mm -hmm. And uh, then it just went on and on from there. As skiers expanded, their program needed to be upgraded to handle the avalanche problem in these back bowls. Mm -hmm. Rod, I was hoping you could talk about your, your record keeping of, of uh, weather events and avalanche events over time um, and, and your process of doing that. And why you think that's important for a for a young avalanche professional to keep tabs on weather and avalanche events and how they might go about doing that i started doing regular pits over thanksgiving weekend on teton pass uh, when uh, I began holding courses in December, and uh, uh, at about the same time, I, I started keeping track of snow data uh, there in my backyard, right at the foot of Teton Pass, uh, just to keep track of, uh, of what was going on in the mountains. And I, I found that I could double the SWE, snow weather, uh, uh, snow water equivalent, from my backyard to Teton Pass, the density would be similar. I would try to estimate what the temperatures would be up there. This is, of course, way before we had weather telemetry. And uh, I could come up with a pretty good idea of what the snowpack would be without even going up there. But then eventually I, I thought I should go up there and do my Thanksgiving pit so I could uh, have some 
pretty good idea of uh, hands-on what the snowpack was doing on Teton Pass. But, uh, you, know, you know, it's uh, easy to get this information now uh, over, the, over the web. Uh, for instance, someone asked me uh, once at a, the, uh, the snow and avalanche a workshop in the fall at, uh, at Seattle how they could forecast for the backcountry and uh, you just keep track of this the weather and snow data from the various ski areas and you can put together a, a pretty good model of the snowpack mm -hmm. uh, one one December uh, I was out of town out of the country actually and uh, I had a course coming up just before Christmas and I got back a week or ten days prior to the course and my wife kept track of the uh, the weather she would uh, take the snow sample off the snowboard the 24-hour board and uh, record it. She would record the temperatures. She would record the amount of new snow, the water content. And so from that data I put together a, a profile using the hand hardness test what I thought the snowpack would be up on the pass and went up on the snowpack up, up on the pass and the snowpack was very similar to what I thought it should be just from that weather data that my wife collected. So one, one can do that. One can put together a pretty good picture of the snowpack up here in uh, either Snow King or a Jackson Hole Mountain Resort by just keeping track of, of the weather as they reported from day to day. And then you know, the downside of all of this is that uh, you get a good forecast from your avalanche center. And maybe it, uh, uh, you use that instead of your own brain for trying to come up with uh, what you think the stability might be. And those forecasts are for a pretty big area, too. Well, yeah, they have three different regions here. They, they have the... The, the, the Tetons, and then they have the the uh, Togadi Pass area, and then then the snow machine country down to the south. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you got a lot from Mike Reem. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So Rod, I know I know you are many people's mentor in the avalanche community. Um, let's talk about mentorship a little bit. You mentioned some of your mentors. You mentioned that any time. There's mentoring going on. Both the mentor and the mentee are learning quite a bit. Well, yes. I mean, every time you go out in the mountains, you, you learn something. Unless you have your brain turned off. You're looking around, you feel the snow, then you're in the backcountry. And uh, 
Uh, yeah, so I, I was never a, a, a big fan of this whole concept because both the mentor and the, the mentee are, are learning at the same time. Mm -hmm. If you've reached the, the point where you don't think you need to pay attention to the snowpack that particular day because you know what conditions are, those are the days that you may be surprised. Yeah, I went out with Ed LaChapelle once to do do a pit on the north slope of a slope called Carbon Mountain. Uh, don't think of Carbon Mountain as a real big mountain, but it was just sort of a hill, uh, just slightly above 11,000, maybe 11.5, 11, 11.6. 11, and uh, on this particular slope, we we did uh, a snow pits, or tried to do them every 10 days of the year just to follow the snowpack, because that was part of our mission to describe the, the continental snowpack there on the Red Mountain Pass. And we used explosives uh, to test the snow before we went out on some of these slopes. Uh, Ed threw a two-pounder out there went off, looked okay, no avalanche. <laughs> and so Ed started to cross his slope and we got a significant collapse. We turned right around, backed off and found another location for the pit site. And uh, I just, that that really made an impression on me because at that time I thought L, uh, Ed was the epitomant, epitomant, uh, that's the wrong word, but uh, of avalanche knowledge. Uh, he knew a lot about the maritime snowpack, and now we were working in the continental snowpack. And so that was a big wake-up call for him and me. So, so that's an extreme example of where the mentor learned something too. Sure. And uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, this whole business of mentoring was uh, uh, one of the big topics there for the Avalanche Review for for a while. Mm -hmm. But uh, anytime anybody goes out in the snowpack, if they're just looking if they're paying attention to the environment and if they treat that as a mountain experience not a social event where they spend so much time talking they're not thinking about the environment the environment that they should be thinking about is snowpack slope angles weather yeah, you know that this whole business of of mentoring. Uh, Lynn Wolf asked uh, me to write a little article on who my mentors were, and I, you know, I named the big, big names. But then I estimate that throughout the uh, thirty-five, thirty-eight years of heavy courses all over the country. 
in, including uh, Mount Washington. I probably had 250 instructors work with me, and I, I learned something from every one of them. So who is the mentor? Right. <laughs> yeah. So Rod, I have some some questions from some of my listeners that wrote in and wanted to wanted to ask you some questions. So one person asked, "What advice would you give to somebody who wants to have a career in the guiding world?" In the guiding world. Yeah. Well. Uh, that's a pretty broad-based question. If you're going to ski guide, you have to first be a pretty avid and strong ski mountaineer, and then, of course, you work into snow and avalanche forecasting to become a, a rock guide. First of all, you have to be able to tolerate people and it helps if you actually like your clients mm -hmm. and then just pick up the necessary skills. Um, I had a, a fellow working with me who was a college student and his winter winter project was to work with us at uh, on the San Juan Avalanche project, and he went out with me uh, when I was doing fracture line profiles, and he did not have the intuitive knowledge of of a subjective danger and objective dangers. So you have to be aware of client risk, whatever it is. Not only falling off the mountain, but weather, and uh, which includes lightning. And uh, you just have to be conservative and have a pretty good intuition of when bad things could happen and very often they're with weather related incidences and then you have to read your client pretty well too in the mountains is your client getting tired do we need to rope up now can we take the rope off now if the client's packed too heavy, are we not going to get back tonight? So forth and so on. So what would you say are some keys to, uh, to longevity in both the guiding world as a career and as an avalanche worker, say a forecaster or a ski patrol? Well, I can still ski, but I can't climb at my age. Uh, so, uh, plan on uh, working longer as an avalanche forecaster than you will as a mountain guide. The reason I 
had to quit teaching AVI courses as I could not keep up with the students. And in trying to do so, I was working so hard, I was starting to miss stuff in the snowpack. Mm -hmm. That's when I knew I had to call it quits. Mm -hmm. It's pretty important to slow down sometimes, right? <laughs> well, I, I didn't want the clients, the, the, the students, to become bored. I, I, I don't know whether I was getting slower or everybody else was getting faster. <laughs> but maybe it was a combination of the both. Sure. So that's a good lead into another question that somebody asked. They asked for you to shed some light on how you've seen the realm of backcountry skiing progress in terms of technology and skill levels. And where do you see it going in the future? Boy, I, I don't know where it's going to go in the future, uh, but I have certainly seen equipment evolve. Uh, in 1961, a friend of mine and I uh, did a, uh, we would call it a ski tour now, uh, we called it a ski mountaineering trip then through the Teton Wilderness area from a little town of Moran in Grand Teton National Park across the Continental Divide and the Absorcas and ended up in Cody, Wyoming. And we had the the old heavy head ski metal ski, which was nice because we knew that it wouldn't break. We had single mountain boots. We had uh, a lift front throw, which would give us a little bit of heel lift, maybe a couple inches. And then we had a topis called the Remy Securus from France. And it had a couple little nubs there to to hold your your toe in from the uh, mountain boot welt, and it would also open up in case you fell. So you had some sort of a release binding with your toe piece, and you had a a uh, release with that front throw, that lift front throw. And you could hook those cables down for a skiing downhill. And that's what we used in 61. And then it went to the skinny skis with the, the skinny skins and the three pins. And uh, actually, you could plow through fairly deep snow with those. And uh, so that improved the mobility and it made it easier f and quicker for us to get back into avalanche terrain. But the big thing then was uh, double boots to keep your feet warm. Mm. An overnight uh, ski tour at below freezing temperatures, hovering around zero or even below, is, is pretty tough with a single mountain boot. But you could do it if the boots were large and if you had a 
a two pair of socks and you could keep one pair dry by using a vapor barrier sock. Mm -hmm. That would help insulate. Of the, uh, the attitude of the folks going back into avalanche terrain has changed remarkably over the uh, past several decades since the early to mid-1970s. The folks went in with without a clue as to avalanche danger, and slowly the uh, concept of avalanche being a natural hazard became popular. And right now, if you look at the list of avalanche courses that are available, you understand that Ski shops uh, talk about avalanches and the need for avalanche awareness. All these uh, workshops that people attend just to hear what's going on in the way of avalanche knowledge these days. Yeah, so avalanche awareness has become quite popular and as Knox Williams just pointed out the snow machine deaths are actually tapering off. So even the redneck type of mentality, give me a snow machine and give me snow, is changing to give me my machine and then where can I take it? Mm -hmm. So along with technology, um Airbags and helmets are very popular these days. Do you feel like, this is another listener question I should say, do you feel like they breed a level of safety that really isn't there? And are people substituting some of this new technology for good decision making and a knowledge of really what's going on in the snowpack? They probably are. I, I don't know. You know, I, I can't get back into avalanche terrain now, but... I've watched uh, since since the 60s. Uh, my son was a heliski guide, and they didn't use that stuff then. It hadn't become popular. Uh, they just accepted the risk. But if I were to go heliskiing now as a client, I would... Certainly, along with my beacon, have whatever I could carry on my back that would increase my survival rate if I did get caught. Mm -hmm. I, I never considered uh, uh, being, becoming a heliski guide just for that reason. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, people paying a lot of money to ski Avalanche Pass never quite made sense to me. <laughs> right. All right, Rod, one last listener question. It, it also has to do with technology. Airbag packs and avalungs in unison. Is it a worthy combo, in your opinion? Or is it too much to process during an avalanche event if you were to be caught in one? 
well, I, I know of several instances where where uh, the uh, black diamond uh, Avalon didn't work because they couldn't get it in their mouth. Mm -hmm. um, I think I heard of one instance where the airbag was not deployed because they couldn't find the handle or something. Uh, it's just, I, I, I think if you have all, all that stuff that you really need to ask yourself, what is the stability of the, of the snow? Ron Perla, in one of the very early National Avalanche schools, Uh, which was held in Reno in those days, it said that uh, if you think you need to get out your avalanche court, which was a state of the art in 1970, maybe you should consider changing your route. Mm. So, Rod, would you rather, if you could only take one thing into avalanche train, you could take a beacon or a slope inclinometer. Which would you take? Oh, no doubt, inclinometer. No doubt. And why is that? The one thing about terrain I think that's that's uh, not used often enough is slope angle. And when you mention inclinometer, you get a number. You take the subjectivity out of it, you get a real number. If your inclinometer reads 34 degrees and you kick off an avalanche, you really don't have an excuse. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm big on slope angle. And reading terrain. You gotta remember that uh, until John Lawton, it might have been the late 60s, but certainly by the early 70s, he invented and produced and sold the first avalanche beacon. So back in the 60s, we had none of that stuff. We just used our head, paid attention to the environment. When we came to a steep slope, we thought about it. Do we want to traverse this slope, go up it or down it? Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, you can get along without all that modern stuff. Mm -hmm. An inclinometer is is old-fashioned. Tried and true. Yeah. So, Rod, I was hoping you could share some stories about watershed moments, I like to call them pivotal moments within your career, whether they were close calls or um, moments where things really came together for you in helping you to understand the backcountry avalanche phenomenon? Well, uh, no, not really, because it was sort of a slow evolution. Uh, I, I picked up on what can happen if you get caught in an avalanche real quick. Uh, 
uh, yeah, I, I lost a ski on snoking in an avalanche in my introductory year to the phenomenon of snow and avalanches. And this was January 64, just before I went to Alta. In those days, they did a lot of ski cutting. They did a lot of ski cutting at Alta in in those days. And uh, I ski checked this slope right at the top of Snoking, knowing that there was an unstable snowpack. I didn't know why it was unstable, but I, I knew that avalanches were running. And so I ducked off into the trees and stepped out of my bindings and, and grabbed a hold of a tree. And then the next person that ski cut it triggered the avalanche. The avalanche ran right along the edge of the trees. This was an open slope that he ski cut in thick timber. And I grabbed hold of the trees, the avalanche ran right in front of me. And uh, then I went to put my skis on and one ski got sucked into the avalanche. And uh, I did not forget that experience. If I had been skiing, uh, uh, standing where that uh, ski tip was, I could very well have been swept along with that avalanche. And so it was just a gradual process. There are a couple uh, instances that uh, uh, where I used poor judgment, and I actually uh, talk about these occasionally in the AVI courses when we're talking about risk. Uh, we were up on Teton Pass, this was in the late 70s, with our little skinny skis using wax, and oftentimes the wax didn't stick that well, so you had to cut a shallow traverse and kick turn and so forth, and we got pretty far out into this bowl and uh, one of the students right behind me said, where are we going? And I realized right away that uh, I was too far out into the bowl. Well, your natural response to that is, well, I'm the guide, I know what I'm doing. But I didn't know what I was doing and I had to admit that to myself. So we get to the top of this bowl and we have lunch and then it's time to do a pit and ease down on the slope a little bit. It was an 11 degree measured slope. And uh, uh, this was in the days when Teton Pass didn't get skied very heavily. And there was a, about a two, two and a half centimeter thick layer of surface hoar about a meter down, and I called the students down to look at it, and we were all standing around and got a tremendous collapse on that surface ore layer. And that crown ran very close to where we did our kick turn to get out of the uh, uh, high-risk area in that bowl. Mm. So, yeah, so I use my uh, poor judgment experiences in the classes to 
demonstrate the fact that from time to time I need a mentor. Mm -hmm. <laughs> then there was a avalanche that we triggered in Colorado. That was an interesting story. Uh, this was just above the Climax Mine where the highway goes over the Continental Divide there. At uh, No, I get it's it's not the Continental Divide, but it's right next to the 10-mile range, which is the Continental Divide, at 11,000 feet. And we climbed up to, to about 12, 12,000 feet, did a pit on the way. The pit showed that there was a very good chance that we would get an avalanche with explosives on a wind-loaded lee slope at about uh, Timberline, which in that part of the country is, is about 12,000. And <clears throat> we get up there, and I had my, my Kinnipack. Uh, the liquid was mixed with the fertilizer, and <clears throat> all I had to do was stick a cap in there and put my pull wire, uh, pull wire igniter on, and I forgot the pull wire igniters. They were back at, at the camp. This was a course for uh, Colorado Outward Bound students, the <clears throat> semester course. And so I was really upset with myself because I was pretty sure we were going to get that avalanche to go. Well, lighting that safety fuse with matches is not easy, especially in a stiff breeze. Finally got it going. 35 students throw the one-pounder out on the slope and just got a little bit of surface to go. And so I jumped down over the the crown and uh, was stomping around wondering if we could bring that the group of 35 students with their various instructors down to look at the, the crown to dig into the crown which was only about 30 centimeters thick find out what weak layer that that new wind-loaded snow fell on when the entire bed surface collapsed on me. Well, I, I was out of my skis, of course, so I could run uphill and uh, actually sort of outran the avalanche. It was a killer avalanche. Had I been farther down, I, I might not have survived it. In front of 35 students, and I had, once we got back to the classroom that afternoon, I had to, to explain why I went out there, and my thinking was, was, was no good because I was so upset that I forgot my pull wire igniter. So little things like that can have a disastrous outcome in one's backcountry tour. And I, I just like to use those as, as examples of where I screwed up. Yeah, thanks for sharing that, Rod. Rod, is there anything else that you'd give advice to 
budding avalanche professionals? Well, try and learn about avalanches. Uh, and that's where you, your learning curve goes way up working at a ski area. We used to call them Class A skiers, but any ski area that has a lot of avalanches. Uh, Alta was the training ground for years and years. You coming from solitude would uh, understand that. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So understand the avalanche phenomenon, and then then learn all you can about snow. Dig in the snow, look at the snow, and then try and relate that to instability. But uh, one easy definition of root finding, one very simple definition of root finding is where are the potential boundaries of an avalanche if I trigger the avalanche? And once you've made that determination, then stay away from those boundaries. But coming up with that assessment uh, depends on what the snowpack is doing, mm -hmm. what's going on in the snowpack. But where are the boundaries of the avalanche path? Uh, when, of course, if you're an avalanche instructor. The best teaching tool you have is to provoke an avalanche. The second best is to look at an avalanche, climb up and look at the crown after the avalanche is run, and then figure out why the crown stopped where it did. Why did the flanks develop where it did? And then looking back, you can say, yes, if I had come down here, I would have been out of the avalanche. When doing that, do you feel like it's, it's valuable to create some buffer as insurance? So maybe overestimating where you think the avalanche may run. Oh, sure, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but with experience, I think you can fairly accurately. Now, I should qualify experience. I'm talking about several years of either working on a, a ski patrol or being a backcountry guide. I'm not talking about your, uh, your avalanche instructor who may only have had three or four years of working with snow in the backcountry. I'm talking about 10, 15 years. When we we're talking about this was around the turn of the century about the requirements to become a certified instructor. At that time, we thought you should have 10 years, 10 full seasons, not 10 years, 10 full seasons of working with snow and avalanches. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it's a, it's a lifelong process. Do you ever, do you ever stop learning? Oh no, now I'm trying to learn something about forecasting rain on snow. Mm. <laughs> we don't know much about forecasting rain on snow. Mm -hmm. We're in the Intermountain area, 
we're dry snow forecasters. We're seeing more of that, aren't we? I'm afraid so. Yeah. Well, Rod, I really appreciate you sitting down and talking to me this morning and, and sharing some stories and some insight. And I think it's a, a very valuable learning tool for, for everybody, all my listeners. And uh, I really appreciate it. Well, you're welcome. Rod, it was truly an honor to have you on the show. Even in his 80s, Rod is still active in the Avalanche community and was heading out to dig a pit for Snow King Resort after our interview. Don't forget to tag us in an Instagram or Facebook post and you'll be entered to win a pair of Black Diamond's Legend Gloves. Winner will be announced on April 15th. Also, take a minute or two to rate and review us on iTunes. Thanks to the sponsors of our show, TAS Gazex, Black Diamond Peeps, and Ten Barrel Brewing. Couldn't do it without you guys. Music today was performed by Grammatic and made possible by the permission of the artist. Check out more of their tracks from a link on my website. Thanks to Mike T for our artwork. Tune in next time on April 15th for a one-two punch episode featuring Sean Zimmerman-Wall and Alex Turan. Sean talks about his work as an avalanche educator, ski patroller, and guide in Patagonia, while Alex talks about her career and how she developed the South American Beacon Project. Until then, stay tuned, stay safe, and keep having fun out there.